You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would so overwhelm us with your love and grace and mercy that our hearts held captive by fear might be set free. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus our attention this morning on 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 from our reading. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There's plenty to be afraid of in the world. In fact, it feels like the world is in perpetual anxiety. Uh, Whatever it is, I've even gone so far to commit myself to not reading any news on the internet ever again. Now, I fail daily, uh, maybe not, maybe even hourly, uh, but it just gets me up and afraid. Uh, And most of that fear is irrational, but they're all fears that we experience in our own lives that are very real to us, even irrational fears. I mean, what are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? What wakes you up at night? What comes to mind in those lull of moments during the day when your mind is blank and all of a sudden something comes flooding to the forefront of your mind and it unnerves you? It strikes fear in your heart. What are you afraid of? Now John, here in chapter 4, is speaking particularly of God's judgment and being fearful of it. That judgment that we will all face on that last great and terrible day where each and every single one of us will stand before the throne of God and answer for our lives. Every deed committed in the body. Apart from Christ, one should fear this day above all others. But for the one putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's a day of salvation. It's a day when we shall finally enjoy perfect fellowship with God, united with all of his saints around his throne, and our whole lives will finally be worship. There is no greater day for the Christian than when Jesus comes again. But maybe the charms of this world dissuade you of that. I myself have gotten caught along that line of thinking. A few summers back, Lauren and the girls and I had this incredible family trip planned. A family trip means you're taking the kids. A vacation means you're not. A family trip planned. And it was going to be really great. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was undergoing significant personal woes. And he really wanted to be on the other side of it. And so as he was unburdening his heart to me, he said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I remember thinking quietly, well, yes, come Lord Jesus, but after our vacation. But there are other real fears that we deal with in conjunction with God's judgment. In fact, if we're honest, most of us live in fear of the world's judgment. 
We find ourselves colluding with certain practices and behaviors that we know to be wrong. But we worry that by not going along with the crowd, much less speaking against it, will hurt us socially or financially. We all want our children to know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus. But where that might hinder them socially or fail to advance them up the ladder, we're very willing to compromise faith. Our lives are easily rooted in fear. Fear of the world's judgment and the punishment that it has to offer for our standing, for we are all standing against an overwhelming tide. But we also may be fearful of forgiving someone who has hurt us. In your heart, you want to forgive them, but if you do so publicly, what would people think? You can almost already hear the friends and family saying, she's always been a pushover. Poor guy, he must be desperate. But friends, let me remind all of us that the Christian feast on a regular diet of crow. Jesus says there's all kinds of things to be afraid of in the world. John says there are all kinds of things to be afraid of in the world. But listen to what Jesus has to say in Luke chapter 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is fear God. And so finally, we're led to one of the greatest fears that maybe all of us harbor, a fear of death, of dying. Yet do we realize that even in our own deaths, as tragic as they may be, and certainly we'll be leaving behind loved ones, that that will be a glorious day and we will be more alive in that moment than we ever were on this earth. I like how one Anglican divine from the 17th century put it. He wrote this, I live here as a fish in a vessel of water, only enough to keep me alive, but in heaven I shall swim in the ocean. So why are we afraid of so many things in the world? John tells us fear has to do with punishment. We're afraid of what might happen. Our fears tend to be inordinate. They tend to be in the wrong things. And I've come to believe that fear itself is the result of believing in a lie. We have a distorted picture of reality. We're not able to see things as they actually are and so have a distorted sense of what we should be fearful of. It's easy to become overwhelmed and overcome with a lie. My family has made teasing and jesting an art form And so at a very young age, I found that the key to a good lie is to make it 70% true. Because if you do that, it's just believable. And there are times in my life where a well-intentioned joke has really done some damage to me. 
When I was a child, my grandmother made us read Evangeline by Longfellow. It was a very tragic poem, and being a little boy, I really didn't want to read it. Uh, but read it I did, and we even went up to Nova Scotia and saw the site where it happened. And of course, it's the story of the English expelling the French Acadians out of Nova Scotia and sending them to Louisiana. You may not know that, but the Cajuns in Louisiana are actually displaced French Canadians. And my grandmother was telling us the history of it, and she said, and you know that when the French Acadians left Canada, the lobsters followed them all the way to Louisiana. And because of their long journey, that's where crawfish come from. So there I was in fourth grade, and the science teacher saying, can anyone tell me anything about crawfish? And my hand went straight up. My grandmother had made it just believable enough because all the history and everything, everything but the main point was true. And so it is with the lies that we believe in our lives. If we are living our lives and making our life decisions based upon falsehood, then we are allowing the father of lies to be the guardian over ourselves and even our children. We're believing in the lie that Jesus is not strong enough, that Jesus is not faithful enough, that Jesus is not good enough. And this fear can make you angry, controlling, and bitter. It can alienate you from everybody else who does not want to get dragged into the web of dysfunction because you believe in a lie, and so you are afraid like a cornered animal. And most of us cannot even see that we're believing in a lie. We are spiritually blind to it. We're going to sing at the end of the service the great Wesley hymn, And Can It Be? And listen to this line about Wesley's own conversion. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That is, God shed his light on Wesley. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Wesley didn't even know that he was bound. Didn't even know he was in the dark. Until God opened his eyes to the reality. And all of a sudden he realized he was living in a spiritual dungeon. And that he was fast bound in chains. And until God allowed him to see that and loosed him of the chains. He wasn't able to walk out of the dungeon. He wasn't able to walk out of the lie that controlled him. For the first time in his life he, had, he saw that he had been believing in a lie that he thought wholeheartedly was true. And even now, it's so glorious to him. It's beyond comprehension. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What is this love that has the ability to cast out fear? Well, because the world talks about love in a myriad of ways. What does it look like? I mean, in one breath, I can say, I love my wife, and I love NASCAR racing. I mean, now, it would be third rail of preaching in Alabama if I started comparing, I love my wife, and I love Alabama football, right? That's close to home. 
But what is love? John tells us that God is love, but we need to remember that love is not God. If you want to see what real love is, look at Jesus. Don't look around you. You may indeed catch glimpses of it, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, but to look at Jesus means to see love in all of its fullness. Jesus is love made manifest. Jesus, God, is love. See what Paul says in verses 8 through 13. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God looks like Jesus the Christ dying on a cross. That's what real love looks like. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Jesus says, some of us would be willing to die for a good person. Certainly most of us would be willing to die for our loved ones. But would you be willing to die for your enemy? Would you be willing to die for someone who hates you unto the point of death? Who wishes you dead? And everything that you stand for, cast into hell? And that's exactly what God does for us. He sees us as we are and loves us. But that doesn't end there. He loves us so much that he sees us as we are and he does something about it. He comes amongst us and he dies for us and he's raised for us. He dies the death that we deserved. Dies in our stead. And by his death and his resurrection, we're made children of God. We've been set to rights with God himself. All of us who are one time antagonistic toward God, even from our dungeons of lies, who would sneer even at the thought of needing rescue. God dies for us. This perfect love, the strongest love that ever was, is, or will be, has the power to cast out fear. Jesus is the only one who can do such a thing. Every other attempt, even another love, will fail. The love of a parent for a child may cause fear to tremble, may make it hide, But even that does not have the power to cast it out. We need a love from outside of us to come in. The imagery that John is using here in verse 18 is one of someone coming into a house, binding up the person who is an invader, who doesn't belong there, and chucking them out the door into the outer darkness. Gone. For good. With that man standing at the door, barring his entry from ever happening again. We need someone to come in from the outside. Jesus talks about this in Mark's gospel when he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. A weak man cannot overcome the strong man. We need someone who is stronger than we are to subdue the one 
that we cannot struggle against on our own. Elsewhere, Jesus uses the imagery of a shepherd. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd and who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. We need a shepherd to protect defenseless sheep. What chance does a sheep have against a wolf? My father, uh, who was a very funny man, uh, and that humor landed me on a psychiatrist's couch very, very early on, uh, did wonderful things with us, and he would take my brothers and friends and I camping all the time. And uh, when, uh, where I grew up in Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, there uh, were bears in the mountains, and inevitably one of the boys would ask my father about what do we do if bears come up, and my father would say the same thing every single time. He'd say, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than Andrew. Well, when a weak man goes up against a strong man, who wins? When a wolf goes up against the sheep, who wins? But when the strongest there ever was goes up even against a strong man, or when a shepherd goes up against a wolf, we know who wins. The strongest there ever was and the shepherd That's why John says earlier in chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is why John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. It is through the death of Jesus Christ that God himself sends his Spirit to dwell within us, that the Spirit of God dwells within us, and he casts out fear, because perfect love has come in, and we abide in him. It's our turning to Jesus Christ and crying out for rescue. It's our eyes being open to the predicament that we are in, that God moves and saves us. I ran across this by D.A. Carson in closing this week that hits right to the point. Everything that we know and appreciate and praise God for in all Christian experience, both in this life and in the life to come, springs from this bloody cross. Do we have the gift of the Spirit secured by Christ on the cross? Do we enjoy the fellowship of saints secured by Christ on the cross? Does he give us comfort in life and death secured by Christ on the cross? Does he watch over us faithfully, providentially, graciously, and covenantally secured by Christ on the cross? Do we have hope of a heaven to come? secured by Christ on the cross? Do we anticipate resurrection bodies on the last day, secured by Christ on the cross? Is there a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, secured by Christ on the cross? Do we now enjoy new identities, 
so that we are no longer to see ourselves as nothing but failures, moral pariahs, disappointments to our parents, but deeply loved, blood-bought, human beings, redeemed by Christ, declared just by God himself, owing to the fact that God himself presented his son Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. All this is secured by Christ on the cross and granted to those who have faith in him. This perfect love display for the world to see on the cross cast out any and all fear. Let us pray. Ah, gracious Lord, thy name is love. In love, receive our prayer. Our sins are more than the wide sea's sand, but where sin abounds, there is grace more abundant. Look to the cross of thy beloved Son and view the preciousness of his atoning blood. Listen to his never-failing intercession, and by the power of your Spirit, preach truth to our failing hearts, that our sins are forgiven, to be of good cheer, and to rest in his perfect love, which cast out all fear. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.